Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey folks, I've come down with a cold, so I'm not going to subject you to a full episode of me coughing and spluttering, but I do have a great show for you from the archives to listen to. Now, three and a half years ago, I interviewed Cormac Leonard about an aspect of our past completely neglected and overlooked by most historians. That's the history of the deaf community. I was reminded of that episode recently when I ran into Cormac at the Dublin Festival of History. That prompted me to re-listen to the show we made, and it's a great conversation. So, whether you heard it first time or not, you'll really enjoy this. I'll catch up to you next week with a new episode. It's a topical one for Halloween on the history of ghosts. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer, and this is A History of the Deaf Community in Ireland. The term forgotten history is one bandied around a lot, not least by myself, But this episode is on what is a forgotten or ignored chapter in Irish history. Prior to making this show, I knew very little about the history of Ireland's deaf community. Indeed, there was no way I could have made an episode like this by myself. I have, however, interviewed Cormac Leonard from Trinity College Dublin, who is a historian who focuses on the history of Ireland's deaf community. We talked on a range of topics from how deaf people were treated in the past, true to how they engaged in Ireland's political movements, such as the struggle for independence. The fascinating answers to all those questions are ahead of us. Now, if you want to find out more about the history of the deaf community in Ireland, check out deafheritagecentre.com. That's deafheritagecentre.com. There's also a more extensive list of links in the show notes that accompany this episode. Now to the interview itself. I began by asking Cormac to give an overview of how deaf people were treated in Ireland in the past. For, for the vast majority of, of deaf people before the 19th century, uh, you're talking a lot of poverty. Uh, a lot of deaf people would have worked or were reported to have worked as fortune tellers. So they would have gone from town to town offering to read the fortunes of people who at the time, you know, Irish people being a lot more superstitious than they are today. Um, you know, this was this was a living for, for very many deaf people. Uh, you also had a lot of deaf people, or a lot of people rather, who pretended to be deaf and pretended to be fortune tellers because this was such a strong part of of, of Irish culture at the time. And uh, there was quite harsh punishment for this in the courts as well. Um, but really, 
I suppose the big difference would be that prior to the opening of schools for deaf people in the country, there wasn't a deaf community. So sign languages were used. And myself and my, my supervisor, Dr. John Bosco Conamet, have done some work in this recently about the possibility of maybe many different sign languages existing in Ireland prior to the deaf schools being opened and afterwards. But any sign language that would have been used would have been very idiosyncratic. So you're talking maybe a large family of deaf children might have developed their own sign language, but it, w- it might not have been shared with deaf people in the next town or the next county. It was only when you had deaf schools opening in the early 19th century that you had deaf kids coming from around the country, coming together, interacting with each other and developing a full, fully fledged sign language, a standardized sign language um, with the help of the, the, their teachers in the school. So that really was the, the watershed that kind of uh, created the deaf community and, and, and created these languages as well that we now that we now know as Irish Sign Language, ISL. Cormac elaborated on this by explaining how the lack of education was often central to the problems facing the deaf community. So prior to the 19th century, one of the, the, the key things that, have, that affected deaf people in Ireland was the fact that there wasn't any public uh, education for deaf children. And this is really key in the sense that deaf children don't have access to spoken language in the way that hearing children do. And so without kind of an early intervention in terms of education, that's suitable for deaf children, they don't acquire language very easily. And so um, they essentially, they, they, they grow up without a language or a very compromised language. So before the 19th century, when, uh, when there wasn't any of these deaf schools in Ireland, you really only had education available to a very, very small minority of deaf people in Ireland, people from the upper classes. Um, quite often, the, I suppose the nobility would send their children to be educated in Britain, um, but what you also had every so often was uh, just examples arising in Ireland of people who are educated in a kind of a roundabout way. So there's a good example. There's a guy called John Burns, who was from Monaghan, and he was basically, I think, almost a pet project of a local Protestant preacher called Philip Skelton. And he helped to educate John Burns in terms of reading and writing and also biblical studies. And... Burns ended up writing a book and getting it published then in the, the mid 18th century called A Historical Remembrancer. Now, the, the actual title is about, I would say, 100 words long. It's one of these very, very lengthy uh, um, book titles characteristic of the time. But uh, it was essentially a, a kind of a history book that's very surprising to see coming from someone who was, as they would have said in those days, deaf and dumb. And he, you know, he, he, he mentions this in the preface to the book. Um, and he, he, had a, he had a quite interesting life uh, life uh, in himself. He was married. He married to a, a hearing lady. He had children. He was a shopkeeper in the kind of the Monaghan town. Then I think at some point he moved to Caledon in County Armagh. So, again, very non-characteristic of other deaf people at the time. Now, the situation began to change in the early 19th century when the first deaf schools opened, as Cormac explains now. I suppose at the at the time of the early 19th century, you had a lot of influence coming from European countries and Britain as well in relation to deaf education um, for on a public basis. So the world's first public school for deaf children would have opened in Paris in 1760, and it would have been opened by a guy called the Abbé de Lepay, and he's fairly famous within deaf communities around the world because he was one of the, the very first, not the first, but certainly one of the first people that saw that Deaf children could be educated, but also wanted to extend the benefits of education to all deaf children, regardless of whether they were rich or poor. And he's also very fondly 
um, remembered by deaf people because he promoted the use of sign language. Now, he had his own ideas about sign language. And one of the key things would be that he saw deaf people's use of sign language amongst themselves as being imperfect and not having any grammar. And he saw a need to change it to fit the, the structures of the French language. Um, whereas, in fact, we know now after you know decades of research into the linguistics of sign language that actually uh, sign language in itself has its own grammar. It's just it works in a very different way to that of spoken languages like Irish or English. Um, but Delepe opened a school. And so you had hundreds of deaf children from all over France coming there, developing this um, French sign language or LSF, as it's now known. Uh, that was hugely influential in America, where um, a, a deaf man called Laurent Clerc, who is French, went over to America and helped set up a, um, a, a really a, a large number of deaf schools there. And their sign language, American sign language, actually is very much influenced by LSF because of that, that initial connection. So you had all these developments. You had these developments in Britain as well. You had schools in London. You had schools in Edinburgh. Uh, the Braidwood family were very well known at the time, the, kind of the late 18th, early 19th century for their deaf schools and their particular method of teaching deaf children, which was also based on sign language. And so in Ireland then, um, Ireland knew about these developments and there's a lot of uh, mention in, in local newspapers at the time uh, uh, about the, the schools of the Abbey de la Paix and the Braidwoods. And so when Dr. Charles Orpen, who's the first person to open a deaf school here in Ireland in 1816, he would have been aware of these, these schools. He would have seen his opportunity when he was working as a doctor in the House of Industry in Dublin. And he would have come across deaf children and experimented with, with teaching them. These experiments were very successful. And so that led to the establishment of, of, of the first school. But it is about a general change of view in certain parts of society, certain influential parts of society that deaf children could be educated. And then as you see, Claremont being established, Claremont, along with most of the other deaf schools in the country, would have had a fundraising um, mechanism whereby they went out and had examinations or uh, demonstrations. So they would bring their star pupils along uh, uh, and they would ask the audience, you know, give us a question and, you know, any question that might be suitable for a hearing child of this age, this deaf child will answer it. But the deaf child would be asked the question through sign language or by writing and they would respond in the same way. And there was massive press coverage of these of these examinations. And I think that that went a long way towards changing public perceptions about deaf people, that they could be educated, that mentally they were every bit as capable as hearing children and that all that they needed was the right method of education. And, uh, and definitely you saw that that kind of rippled through the country as the 19th century progressed. The Catholic deaf schools that were established in Cabaret in Dublin use the same the same approach they would have public examinations and then of course um this this got a little bit tied into the religious issues that were going around ireland at the time and for a long time there wasn't a catholic deaf school and so one of the main impetuses for setting up a, a, a catholic deaf school was because catholic deaf children were going to the the, the protestant sco schools that were in existence at the time so that was another kind of push you know um you know well if we're going to have a deaf school at all, we're going to have one of our own. We're going to have a Catholic deaf school. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, and, and then once you saw children coming out of deaf schools and becoming, I suppose, what, what were often termed at the time as, you know, productive members of society, you saw them becoming tailors, shoemakers, seamstresses, bakers, you know, a range of different um, of different trades, different jobs. 
While things may have been improving somewhat, there was no question many deaf people remained marginalised in Ireland in the 19th century. Unsurprisingly, they frequently had to turn to the workhouse. The experiences of deaf people in these institutions was very different to that of hearing people, not least because they were viewed very differently by the authorities. Um, yeah, the experience of deaf people in the workhouses. I mean, for, first of all, deaf people use the workhouse quite a lot. Um, there's very little record during the famine times of deaf people. And I think that's simply because at the time, I mean, you'll see this if you look through indoor relief registers, you know, the description of of paupers becomes very abbreviated because simply there were so many people coming into the workhouses. So uh, I would imagine clerks decided, look, it's not important to record these people as being deaf or deaf and dumb, as they call as they called at the time. Um, it's only after the work, the, the famine ends and I suppose numbers start going down in terms of, of, of the workhouses that you'll see these these experiences emerge. You'll see people described in the registers as being uh, deaf mute, for example. Uh, and also you'll see a lot more newspaper reports uh, around the table, boards of guardians meetings, talking about deaf inmates and and, and their experiences. And so the, the key thing really is communication with the staff, with the guardians themselves, and they're being interviewed as to whether they're going to be admitted. Um, communication becomes very problematic. You do have a lot more people as the century progresses who are coming out of schools who are literate, uh, who are able to write what, what it is that they you know, the, the reason for being there. Cormac went on to paint a vivid picture of two deaf people who spent considerable amounts of their lives in workhouses. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There was a guy called John Neville, who I, I'm, I'm researching a lot of it at the moment. I find he's a fascinating guy, but I'm only coming across him through little snippets in uh, newspaper reports, and he would have spent something like 25 years in the workhouse in Bear, uh, Parsonstown, as it, as it used to be called. And he he, um, he was a guy who had been sent to Cabra, the boys' school for deaf uh, uh, deaf kids in Cabra, St. Joseph's. Um, and as soon as he finished his schooling, he would have come straight back to the workhouse. He didn't, he, the, the school essentially didn't think he could be caught, he could be taught a trade. So he returned to the workhouse where he stayed for the next 25 years. But unlike a lot of deaf people in that situation, he actually seemed to, I'm not going to say thrive, but he became a very trusted messenger in the workhouse, not necessarily a paid staff member, of course, at the time, but um, he, he was he was described as the workhouse messenger. And he would have communicated with the Board of Guardians via letter quite often in the, the local newspapers around, and kind of Baron Ross Craig would have talked about, oh, Oh, John Neville has written another missive to the to the guardians again, and uh, so he would have been requesting kind of equipment for his job. He would have applied for workhouse positions, for example, porter. Quite often, he never was considered to be in the running for those. Um, when the when the Home Rule move, movement um, began um, to kind of 
to become very powerful in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, John Neville was very much a home rule man. And so he'd be writing to the Guardian saying, oh, the trumpet of home rule has sounded. And I hope that one day we'll see a free Ireland. And, you know, the, all these little kind of asides. So he was a bit of an eccentric character, very, very well known in the town. Um, and certainly, you know, as as someone who could have left the workhouse at any time, he decided, look, this is this is working for me. Um, one of the most interesting things I found about him is uh, there was a yearly retreat for past pupils of St. Joseph's School in Cabra. So every year, ex-pupils from all over the country, some from Britain, um, would, would come back over for this kind of week of uh, socialising, uh, you know, being among your own school friends, being able to use your own sign language as well for the first time in, in, in a whole year without worrying about being understood. And John Neville would go every single year to this retreat in Cabra and he'd go by foot. So every single year he'd walk from from Beer County Offaly to, to Dublin. And the guardians would always have a, a whip round and give him money for a new set of a new set of clothes for this as well. So he was at the same time he was ridiculed by the guardians and anytime he applied for the job it was kind of you know a cause for the whole table to erupt in laughter, which is quite infuriating uh, as someone who's involved in the deaf community and myself to see that kind of behavior. Um, so he, so that's one one kind of experience. A lot of people had other, I suppose, less kind of successful experiences. So there's a, a woman called Annie Eakins who would have lived in Carrick-Macross workhouse for many years herself. Uh, and very, very similar to John Neville, she would have written letters to the Guardians kind of um, complaining about her situation, complaining about other inmates. She was involved in a lot of, kind of fights and arguments with other inmates as well, but was was very clear in her letters that she wasn't on the same level as them, that they were just tramps. And she was there. She was there uh, wrongly because her family had emigrated to the United States. It's not quite clear whether her family, I, I suppose, deliberately left her back in Ireland or whether it was a case that they always had intended to send send for her. Either way, she was in the workhouse for many years and actually she ended up dying in the the Monaghan County home in the 1950s. So she never left the workhouse in that sense. But again, very literate, uh, applied for workhouse jobs, uh, which was received with the same kind of level of derision from the guardians, but very well able to advocate for herself in that way. Um, but was just, did, did not have a chance of succeeding at that time outside of the workhouse. And so uh, stayed in there. And that's, that's an experience that a lot of deaf people had is that uh, the workhouse was not somewhere where they were sent. It was not somewhere where they they had to go, but it was somewhere that a lot of deaf people found themselves living because of the attitudes of society outside of the workhouse in, in the sense of, um, you know, we don't trust deaf people to do these jobs. We don't trust deaf people to do uh, to do these things. However difficult the workhouse was, this paled in comparison to the experience deaf people faced in prisons and the wider judicial system, as Cormac now explains. I suppose court and prison, I think this is a really rich area of study. I, I've spent a lot of time looking at deaf people in court cases. And I suppose the more t- the more times someone breaks the law, the more times someone is in court, the more visible they become in these records. And uh, um, I've come across a couple of deaf people. Patrick Byrne is another individual. He's uh, a new Ross guy. He never went to a deaf school himself, but um, he would have been in a number of kind of a number of occasions he would have uh, come into contact with the law he seemed to have a thing about policemen so whenever he saw a policeman after a certain stage he'd just autom- automatically go to attack them uh he was known as being a very big muscly guy very tall and um quite a lot of the time when he was called to court in new ross for the you know at the petty sessions 
he'd have a friend of his called Martin Neal, uh, who would interpret for him. And Martin was um, very, very much the same age as Patrick. They would have grown up in the same, uh, you know, very kind of working class area of New Ross, uh, a lot of poverty in the area. And Martin Neal himself was, was certainly no stranger to the courts either. And there's, there's, there's a couple of occasions when the judge has Patrick Byrne in front of him, says, OK, well, we need our, we need our interpreter now for, for Patrick Byrne. Where's Martin Neal? Oh, he's actually in prison himself as well. We don't have his services today. Um, so eventually there was kind of a small group of people who would alternate doing interpret, interpreting for Patrick. Uh, so he spent two times, uh, two uh, sentences in penal servitude as well. So there's a lot of information about how in prison uh, communication was extremely difficult. Um, no matter how unwilling people were in the workhouse to communicate with deaf people via writing or, or via sign language, it was far less so in prison. And a lot of the time, um, misbehavior in prison would lead you to be uh, um, sent to a darkened room. And quite often you would have muff, muff restraints um, holding your hands together while you're in, the, while you're in this uh, punishment room, which for a deaf person, uh, that is essentially their main means of communication through gesture or through sign language, through writing. So um, securing their hands in that way is it's, it's really it's almost cruel and unusual punishment. And it's recognized as such today, but at the time it wasn't. Um, so you had the likes of Patrick Byrne. There's also deaf women that that uh, make an appearance as well. So there's another lady called Mary Wilson, who uh, is quite often in the newspapers in Belfast around the turn of the century for uh, stealing. And one of the interesting things about Mary is that Belfast had a very tight knit deaf community that was quite multi-denominational in the sense that there was uh, there was one mission um, mission Hall, kind of a, like a social centre for deaf people that accepted Protestants of all denominations and Catholics as well. So it was quite a supportive area. It had, it had a very good infrastructure for deaf people. And there was a local missionary called Francis McGinn, who was deaf himself and who was you know, a brilliant campaigner for deaf people's education and rights. But Mary Wilson made the mistake of stealing not just from hearing people, but also from deaf people as well. And this happened so often that she kind of wore out her welcome among the Belfast deaf community uh, to the extent that, you know, after a couple of dozen cases, Francis McGinn himself would come into court or would kind of write letters to the to the, the magistrates to say, look, I've tried everything I can with, with, Miss, with Mrs. Wilson. There's nothing more that I can do. I kind of wash my hands of her. So to lose the support of the network of people who can use her language as well as, as, as you know, having been sent to prison and I suppose being rejected from hearing society, she's now been rejected from deaf society as well. Um, so it's quite a hard story. Um, but I think some of the some of the deaf people that I've come across, who've especially the ones who've um, been sentenced to penal servitude, that opens up a whole new range of sources as well. In the sense that they're they're often writing petitions to the Lord Lieutenant to ask for remission of their sentences, to kind of explain exactly what happened. And there's lots of really, really rich detail. There's a guy called James Brennan who was one of the first deaf people to be involved in a high profile case of um, being in court and using an interpreter. Uh, when he was very young, 13 years old, he was accused of stealing a pocket watch. And uh, that was kind of the start of a life of crime for him. And there's so many petitions that he's written and letters to the Lord Lieutenant and letters to the prison authorities basically saying, you know, this is what happened and this is why I did it. And when I leave prison, you know, am I going to be guaranteed a certain income because it's very hard for deaf people to get a job. So there's all these sources that have little little aspects of deaf life in them. Um, and it's it's a bit unfortunate in the sense that these are all people who've been through what are very traumatic experiences. And this isn't to say either that these are all 
innocent people. Obviously, they're they're guilty of of these crimes that they've committed for the most part. But it's I think in trying to understand what has put deaf people in that position that they needed to steal or that they didn't have any option or that there was, you know, because of the lack of education in their childhoods, you know, that there wasn't an awful, an awful lot else for them to do. Um, the sources are actually quite rich in information like that. Now, as we all know, Ireland experienced major upheaval in the early 20th century, starting with the home rule crisis in the years before the First World War, then leading on to the War of Independence from 1919 onwards. Cormac now explains how Ireland's deaf community engaged in these movements and struggles, but also how it divided them. There's not a huge amount of evidence that we've found so far. Um, I know that there's a couple of, of individuals. So, for example, there's a guy called William Levy who would have gone to Cabra. Uh, he was a Roscommon man and he was involved in the War of Independence, uh, fighting for the IRA. There was an ambush in a town called Scromogue in Roscommon that he was kind of instrumental in. And I know that, uh, again, the, the Deaf Heritage Centre, which is an organisation based in the Deaf, Deaf Village, Ireland, which is a campus of deaf organisations in Cabra, the Deaf Heritage Centre have a museum in relation to deaf history and they collect a lot of materials. And they produced a DVD a couple of years ago about deaf people's experiences in the War of Independence. So you would have had quite a lot of examples, for example, of uh, deaf people being you know, ordered by soldiers to halt or to, you know, if it was curfew for them to go back home. If they couldn't hear this, this led to all kinds of problems. Beyond that, there's not a huge amount of information that we've come across so far about deaf people's involvement. And I think one of the reasons may may have been because they were excluded maybe from consideration uh, as potential fighters for Irish independence. And uh, uh, William Levy might have been an outlier, but there's, there's no telling how supportive deaf people could have been. Certainly deaf people coming out of the Cabra schools. I mean, the Christian brothers were the, were the order that taught the deaf boys and they would have been very a very patriotic uh, group of people in, in in terms of teaching Irish history to deaf boys at the time. You have a couple of other characters as well. There's a guy called John Sinnott in in Waterford City, and Waterford was kind of the the scene of a lot of kind of battles between kind of Redmondite kind of Home Rule supporters and Sinn Fein supporters. Kind of a, you know, um, around about 1917, 1918, and so, and so on. And Sinnott himself was captured by the IRA at one stage because he was such a troublemaker for the Home Ruler side. And he was he was kind of a constant thorn on their side. There was, you know, these street battles. Senate would often be seen as as the instigator. Um, and then, of course, you've you've got um, John Neville, who I mentioned before in Bear Workhouse, and he was he was a, a passionate home ruler. Um, now, on the other side of things, it's quite interesting. I suppose one of the things I've come to realize is that we talk of the deaf community in Ireland, but at the time, certainly, you could have talked about deaf communities, um, and because uh, Protestant deaf people would have generally gone to different deaf schools. They also would have learned a different sign language, uh, one that was very similar to what we now call British Sign Language, which is different to Irish Sign Language. And there wasn't a huge amount of interaction between deaf Protestants and Catholics at the time. As I say, the, the Belfast Mission Hall did have a certain amount of interaction, but it seems to have actually been the most tolerant place for deaf people uh, would have been Belfast City. Outside of there, there was, there was very, very little interaction. Uh, so Francis McGinn, who I've, I've already mentioned, the deaf missioner, uh, would have been a staunch unionist. Uh, he actually facilitated the signing of the Ulster Covenant in 1912 within the, the building of the Belfast Mission. And a lot of deaf people's signatures are actually on the, the Belfast Covenant um, records now that you can see. And I've looked through these signatures. And even though there was deaf Catholics and Protestants that you can clearly see in the census and the Belfast Mission reports, none of the Catholic, deaf Catholics names are on 
or on the uh, the Ulster Covenant. Uh, so there's obviously still that political division that are there. And, and Francis Bingham is an interesting character as well because he's very, very pro-union. He's he's a very proud British Irishman, uh, but he was actually arrested in, in 1914, just after the outbreak of the war, um, because there was suspicion that he was a German spy. And what what act, what happened was he was over in Scotland on on holiday, and he he was asking some locally stationed troops some questions um, on pen and paper about their 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 weaponry, just out of out of curiosity, because uh, McGinn was a fiercely intelligent man. Um, but because of the fact he was using pen and paper, he wasn't using his voice. For some reason, the soldiers thought this might be a spy. They ended up arresting him, questioning him. And then he wrote a long letter to the local paper afterwards, basically saying, how, how dare you? You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a very well-known deaf missioner. I have a Bachelor in Divinity from uh, Gallaudet University in Washington, which is a preeminent deaf university. And uh, he, he, he then makes it very clear that even though, with them, even though right, right now a lot of deaf people around the world would say that being deaf is a hugely important identity that actually isn't important across national divisions, uh, that being deaf gives you a kind of a commonality of experience that's more important than, than national, nationalism. But at the time, McGinn was, was so irate about being arrested that he was saying, I, you know, well, well, well I, I can't believe you've questioned my patriotism because I, I despise Germans. And I remember at one deaf conference I was at, there was a table of Germans that took a watermelon that was intended for the entire group and they ate it all themselves. And that's just a, an example of of the German mentality, you know, so so obviously being deaf wasn't enough to unify uh, uh, deaf Germans and deaf Britons for, from again. Uh, so, yeah, so I, 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 you can definitely see traces of both political traditions among deaf people um, at the time. In 1922, 26 counties of Ireland gained independence from the United Kingdom and the Irish Free State was established. Historians have long debated what impact this had on the economy and wider society. I was curious as to how independence affected Ireland's deaf community? I don't think it had a massive impact um, at the outset. I think what you see at independence is the, the changes that had been taking place over the last 100 years continuing um, fairly unabated. There wasn't a huge interest in the Irish Free State Government in deaf education, for example. Deaf education tends to be the key area um, that deaf politics is concerned about. It's where a lot of historians focus. But really, um, Control of the Catholic deaf schools was already in the hands of the Christian brothers and the Dominican nuns, and it was essentially left that way. Um, Ireland is fairly unique in the sense that the Catholic deaf schools, which were the biggest schools in the country, used sign language in the schools ever since they were established in the 1840s, 1850s, all the way up to the 1950s. And in most of the countries, you saw a change towards a different education system called oralism in the 1880s and, and onwards, which is essentially teaching lip reading, um, teaching use of speech, but also in many cases banning sign language and sometimes, you know, introducing physical punishment for children who used sign language. And that's really become the major political flashpoint for deaf people in Ireland now is, you know, within education, which is such a crucial time for deaf children to allow them to use sign language, which is the most accessible language for deaf children at the time because it's visual uh, without any kind of fear of, you know, being punished. Um, so that so so that education system continues on Irish independence up to the 1950s, and it's only in the 1950s and 60s that that changes, and you definitely see you know the introduction of oralism in the schools, a lot more of this terminology that tended to separate deaf people out from each other, 
Um, I think what you did see after independence was, uh, funnily enough, you saw deaf people using the courts a lot more for civil cases in a way that you didn't see very often prior to independence. I think that's a reflection of the fact that you had now a critical mass of deaf people who'd been educated, who were literate and were willing to kind of say in the, in the new the new free state, I'm going to go to court for issues in relation to employment, uh, in relation to school attendance. Um, so it's rather than being just defendants or witnesses in criminal cases, they were actually taking cases themselves. And, uh, you know, some of the documents there are very interesting because deaf people are, are I suppose, becoming very active in, in the sense of self-advocating uh, at an individual level. You didn't really see organised group self-advocacy in a political sense until really until the 1980s when the Irish Deaf Society was established. But even before then, you saw issues arising that deaf people did campaign on and take a position on. To finish, I asked Cormac what problems remain in terms of how the hearing community in Ireland relate to the deaf community. Cormac now explains how the way many of us understand and treat sign language can be an issue. I think the key thing really is the 2017 Irish Sign Language Act is just the most recent kind of expression of the fact that ISL, Irish Sign Language, is a real language. Um, I think a lot of hearing people don't really grasp that, uh, especially when you talk about the fact of there being different sign languages in other countries and people. I can understand how that can be a surprise to people, but I don't understand when people say, well, surely it would be easier if it was just all the one language. Because obviously with with the Irish language, we don't take that that position. We don't don't say, well, wouldn't it be better if everyone spoke English? So with that same eye on the value, the cultural value of diversity and maintaining tradition and, and maintaining language, we should be looking to preserve and promote ISL. I would say one of the things as well is just that realization that along with it being a language that any language has a connection to a language community and that the deaf, the deaf community is where ISL has arisen from. It's where ISL in, you know, in a very real sense was born. The the Irish deaf community is, is what keeps it ticking, what keeps it changing as any, as any language does. And it's really important to be aware of that richness. I think I would say that hearing people aren't aware of the cultural richness of the deaf community. It's not just about learning to spell your name uh, as as much as as, as we love to see more people learning sign language. It is about the fact that as a language, as as, as a community with a history, it does represent um, a rich area of diversity for this country that I don't think enough people are aware of. As I say, the Deaf Heritage Centre is a museum in Dublin that people can visit. And, And it's great to see in the last five or 10 years there's more historical work being done as well on the community and the language. So um, hopefully that will continue. I'd like to thank Cormac for his time. You can find out more about the history of Ireland's deaf community at deafheritagecentre.com. That's deafheritagecentre.com. Or you can check the other links in the show notes. I'll be back next week. I'm not sure exactly what the topic is. I'm getting very close to finishing the series Partisans, but it probably won't be ready by next week. But I will have a show out next Monday. Until then... Sloan. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 